60s. Sunshine, hot and humid for the afternoon, a high near 90. Division, partisan dysfunction, inability to govern. These are all concerns that have been raised in the public discourse in recent years, and the situation is not getting better. If anything, it is getting substantively worse. We've seen a couple examples of that in recent days. We're going to get into talking here later this hour about the banning of InfoWars and Alex Jones from basically everything. Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and any social media platform of note they have been banned from. And there are a lot of considerations to tick through as we analyze that. And we'll get to that sh- there shortly. And it'll emerge out of our our general thesis that I'm going to lay down here to start off the show. But, you know, what I want to begin with is this, this tension... This anticipation of what some have called a second civil war that's taking place in the culture, a cold civil war, if you will, between what I've dubbed the culture of grievance versus the culture of gratitude, or you you could also describe it as the culture of conquest versus the culture of consent. This isn't going away anytime soon. It isn't going away until... it's like any war. Let, let's let's take the metaphor all the way, right? If we're going to use war as a metaphor, and we're going to do so without irony or without hyperbole, then what we're trying to convey is the sense that at least one of these two forces is intent upon utterly destroying or subjugating the other. Because that's what war is, right? And if that's the case... The only way to end it is to totally defeat or subjugate the aggressor. This is always true, right? Whoever the aggressor is in a conflict, they're not going to give up until they either get what they want or are stopped, neutralized. And what I think we need to, and I want to be careful in terms of how I articulate this, because this is this is a metaphorical war, all right? We're not talking about actual violence. We're not talking about taking up arms. We're not talking about getting into fights or breaking out, you know, getting the, the firearms going off now. But in the when it comes to our willingness to stand up and to raise our voices and to put our feet down and to draw lines in the proverbial sand and say this far, no further, and in fact, to to take ground from our opponents, we have to be willing to treat this as a war. And we have to set for ourselves the goal that we are not going to accept anything other than the total defeat or complete subjugation of the political and cultural left. That's where we're at. We cannot coexist with people who are intent upon destroying us and subjugating us. And that's the situation that we find ourselves in. We find ourselves, you know, it's, we're not, we're not having a political discourse. You know, I use that term quite a bit on the show. We're not having a political discourse anymore. We're, we're having a situation where if you think the wrong things, if you have the wrong opinions, if, if you stray from the prescribed course, you are going to be shut down 
shut down, shut up, and sidelined. And that is not that is not healthy for one thing, but it's also not sustainable or acceptable. And we have to be willing to fight back in earnest and say we're not going to take it anymore. And specifically, what I'm going to ask you to commit to tonight is to no longer accept the moment the word racism falls out of a leftist mouth, you need to stop the conversation right there and pin them down. What the hell are they talking about? What are you talking about when you use this word racism? Because if you're talking about if you're talking about irrational generalizations based upon nothing but people's completely irrelevant demographic characteristics, regardless of the group in question, regardless of whether it's white people, black people, or any other irrelevant demographic characteristic, then, okay, good. I'm glad we've established that. Now let's move forward with the conversation. If, however, by racism, you mean this power dynamic whereby only white people can be racists and people like Sarah Jung, who was just hired for the New York Times editorial board, can never possibly be, no matter how racist her rhetoric actually is, because she's non-white. If that's your definition, if you if you don't actually oppose racism, you're just using the concept as a rhetorical weapon in order to advance your political revolution. Then shut up. <laughs> you're we're, we're not we're not moving forward as if there's actually a real problem that needs to be addressed, because clearly you don't believe. That racism as such is a problem. Otherwise, you'd be just as upset about Sarah Jung as you are about whatever else you're perceiving to be racism. This is the commitment we have to have moving forward, that we're not going to accept, we're not going to accept the argument on the terms that are offered by the left. This is the right's biggest problem. Number one, I would put it number one. The political right's largest problem, number one problem, and the reason we're losing the culture in spite of recent political victories, the reason we're still losing the culture is because we concede to containing our debate within the limits that have been established by the left. We utilize their language, we utilize their definitions, we argue on their terms, and that's why we lose. Well, I've said it before that the left spends their time appeasing socialists and the right spends their time appeasing the left. (laughs) <laughs> that's that is accurate and to what it like what do you think is going to happen just like appeasing any aggressor let's go with neville chamberlain anytime you appease an aggressor who has as their end your destruction or subjugation you're never going to get to the point where you've appeased them enough you're never going to get to the point where they're like okay we're good now we can coexist no the the more you give them, the more they're going to ask for, the more they're going to take. The more you allow them to take, the the sooner they're going to come after more. If you give them us a cookie. Exactly. And so we, we have to start treating this. We have to start acting as though we actually are under attack. Because we are. Closing argument. My name is Walter Atson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. Twin and your iHeartRadio app. Two ways to stream us. We're here 9 to 11 weeknights. Appreciate you tuning in. You can join the conversation, 651-989-5855. Brad Olman takes those calls and produces the show. Now, just as a review of the Sarah Zhang situation, of course, you know by now you've no doubt been exposed to the, the various tweets and statements that she's made. And there have been 
efforts to try to defend her and to try to characterize this as, oh, she wasn't being literal. She wasn't being, she was being satirical. And, you know, look, I'll accept that possibility, right? Like, I'm not going to assume just because it's it's advantageous for my argument that she's the worst human being on the planet and that she actually meant that she, that she intended these statements in the worst possible way that they can be taken. Well, and we've read articles before that say perhaps we should have a rebirth of irony in that a sense of bringing back a sense of humor on both the right and the left right. would appease a lot or would not appease but would alleviate a right. lot of the tension that we feel against each other. And the, and here's the thing. I there I'm not particularly interested in how serious she was. That is not the issue. The issue is not whether or not she actually believes white people should all die. Okay? Like because as it turns out, she's not in charge of that, right? Like I don't we don't have to actually worry that she's somehow going to be crowned empress of the universe and, and snap her infinity gauntlet and all the white people are going to disappear. That's not going to happen, right? So we don't need to worry about that. What I'm concerned about is what her state, what her use of this particular form of satire, crediting her with the benefit of the doubt, what her use of this particular form of satire and the New York Times acceptance of it communicates about the broader culture. That's what's at issue. And what it communicates is something very specific. And we talked about this last week. It communicates that the political and cultural left in this country doesn't actually oppose racism at all. Not at all. Not for one second. They don't oppose what racism actually is which is the irrational generalizations made about individuals based upon the racial group that they are a part of. They don't oppose that at all. What they oppose, what they oppose is what they perceive to be the oppressor class, which they have defined for their, for their rhetorical purposes and political purposes as white, heterosexual, male, cisgendered, Christian, you know, go down the list, right? So if you're part of the oppressor class... I'm in trouble. Yeah, you're in a lot of trouble. <laughs> I'm not far behind you, right? <laughs> I've, I've only got one half of one category protected me, right? So, and it's not even protecting me. But if you're part of that oppressor class, then you can never be the victim of quote, racism, unquote, and this is how we're going to refer to it from now on, quote, racism, unquote, you can never be a victim of that because you are in power, so to speak. This is the way it was uh, articulated by Andrew Sullivan in a piece that we shared with you last week. The alternative view, that of today's political left, is that Jung definitionally cannot be racist because she's both a woman and a racial minority. Racism against whites in this neo-Marxist view just isn't a thing, just as misandry literally cannot exist at all. And this is because in this paradigm, racism has nothing to do with a person's willingness to prejudge people by the color of their skin or to make broad, ugly generalizations about whole groups of people based on hoary stereotypes. 
Rather, racism is entirely institutional and systemic, a function of power, and therefore it can only be expressed by the powerful, i.e. primarily white straight men. For a non-white female like Sarah Jung, it is simply impossible. That was the, the characterization, I think quite accurate, put forward by Andrew Sullivan uh, last week. And the, Vox has a piece by a Zach um, Bloomchamp that is a response to this and also a response to David French over at the National Review. He writes, the problem here, though, is assuming that Zhang's words were meant literally, that when Zhang wrote hashtag cancel white people, for example, she was literally calling for white genocide, or that when she said white men are BS, she meant each and every white man is the human equivalent of bull feces. And responding to that, John Sexton over at uh, Hot Air <laughs> says, wow, what an insight. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that no one who read White Men Are BS thought Jung was envisioning a fecal metamorphosis. And that's correct. And then, he, and then uh, the gentleman, Zach um, Blutkamp, continues, to anyone who even passingly familiar with the way the social justice left talks, this is clearly untrue. White people is a shorthand of these communities, one that's used to capture the way that many whites still act in clueless and or racist ways. It's typically used satirically or hyperbolically to emphasize how white people continue to benefit, even unknowingly, from their skin color, or to point out the ways in which a power structure that favors white people continues to exist. And so, in other words, this is affirming this idea that it isn't actually the racism that's the problem, as the left sees it. What the left sees as the problem is that there's in a in a presser and a victim class. And these are the only two categories that you can fit into, by the way. There is no third. You can't be an outsider. You can't be a, a bystander in this scenario. You're either one or the other. You're either part of the problem or you're part of the solution. And this is this is a war as they see it. It's a revolution as they see it. And that is how they are conducting themselves. And we have to recognize that and respond accordingly. This is the thing. No matter how peaceful you want to be, no matter how accommodating and civil and respectful you want to be because you're a decent human being, if someone is is hell-bent on assaulting you, if they're hell-bent on subjugating you, if they're hell-bent on conquering you, you have no choice. You are at war at that moment, whether you want to be or not. And the only question coming out of it is, are you going to prevail? Or are you going to be beaten? 651-989-5855. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. When I say that we're in a war and we need to recognize it as such and that we need to behave accordingly, I am using a metaphor, just to be clear. <laughs> this is a point I'm going to have to make repeatedly, just in case anybody's misunderstanding. I am using a metaphor, but the sense of urgency and the sense of stakes, what's at stake, is no less real than if it were an actual physical war. And when I talk about the way we need to, to behave, the way we need to act as if we're in a war, is we need, we need to stop yielding the platform to the left's attacks. We need to stop surrendering to their definition of terms. We need to stop proceeding as though their premises are valid 
and arguing within the 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 context and the rhetorical walls that they've built up, the the cages that they've put us in in terms of what's acceptable and, and the direction the conversation is going to go. We need to push back. And one example I'm looking at here tonight is this concept of racism. They've made it very clear this hiring of Sarah Jung at the New York Times and their weathering of the storm of backlash over it and and the way in which it has been defended by the left indicates beyond any doubt that they don't actually care about racism as such at all. And so from this point forward, at the moment that a leftist drops the word racism into a conversation, that that conversation needs to halt. It needs to halt. And, it, and we, need to, we need to define our terms. We need to establish what it is we're even talking about. Because if you're going to call somebody a racist, but what you actually mean is just that, well, they're white, therefore, then you're the racist, right? And so this, this confuse or this uh, confounding of terminology, it's, it's actually, it's immoral to allow it to continue. It's immoral to not stop the conversation and define terms. Because if we allow the people who are listening to these conversations, the people who are the, the, the audience, the bystanders, and the f- folks who are consumers of the public discourse, if we allow them to proceed as if the left's definition of, quote, racism, unquote, actually is racism, then those people are going to be misinformed from that point forward. And that's, and that's something that we can prevent simply by having the gumption to stand up and say, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. What do you mean by racism? Because here's what I mean. I mean generalizations based on nothing but a person's skin color. It sounds to me like that's not your definition. It sounds to me like you're talking about the, this, this hokey institutional power structure nonsense that takes the responsibility out of the heart and mind of an individual, at which point, what are we even talking about anymore? We're talking about your politics. We're talking about your political agenda. We're talking about your social agenda. We're not talking about something that a person can change about themselves. We're talking about having to yield to your political agenda, which is, you know, and, and they do this all the time. They, they set the terms of debate in such a way that the only solution to the problem as presented is their political agenda. And so if you oppose their political agenda, then you're for the problem, in this case, racism. You become a racist because you're against their prescribed solution, which is moving forward with the Marxist revolution. Let's take calls. 651-989-5855. Let's talk to Mike in Farmington to start things off. Thanks for taking my call, Walter. Yeah. Um, I guess part of what I was thinking about when you were uh, you were talking there and the leading into the show is um, I remember going to to grade school, and, you know, I just wanted to kind of carry on about my business. I didn't really want to bother anybody, but there was always this this bully, for whatever reason, he just wanted to pick on me, and I, I didn't want anything to do with it, but it's, they just keep, he kept on me and on me, mm-hmm. and finally I had, to, I had to ask the teacher permission that I could respond and kind of protect myself, and yeah. I'm thinking about what's going on here. Uh, I remember these Trump rallies where the, the Antifa and some of these radical leftists were actually chasing people down in, in the street and right. beating them and yeah. showing up at events. Yeah. And, you know, another thing that comes to mind is script is a scripture. I believe it's something to the effect that 
our righteousness, our filthy rags before God. And it's hard to have a discussion or a dialogue with somebody that can't even see their own ugliness or acknowledge that. They, it seems like the left is just... They will not acknowledge that. So I don't know how you can have a dialogue. You can't. You can't. And, and that's a that's a very important point. Yeah, I, I I hate to cut you off, Mike, but I want to take another call here, and I want to comment on that. I appreciate the thoughts as always. We cannot allow ourselves to forget the axiom that Mike is speaking to there. You cannot have a debate. You cannot have a conversation. You cannot have a dialogue with somebody who is not acting in good faith. If they're not actually interested in arriving at an understanding of what you are talking about and conveying an accurate understanding of what they are talking about, if instead they're engaged in in a conflation and rhetorical devices meant to confuse the the objective meaning of words and they're actually trying to obscure the truth and they're casting you in a in a in a poor light and acting as though you're some sort of moral monster because you don't agree with them then you can there's there's nowhere to go from there and so that's that's another thing that we need to shut down like as soon as that we're we're it's obvious that that is the space in which we're quote debating unquote we need to call that out we need to be like listen I'm not going to accept your premise right now. Yeah, you're not acting in good faith. I'm calling shenanigans. This is not a debate that's happening right now. You're not, you're not actually trying to convey the truth of your thoughts, and you're not trying to understand or hear mine at all. And so this conversation is over. I have nothing left to learn from you, and you're not trying to learn anything from me. And so what's the point? Let's squeeze in Anthony and St. Paul. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for taking my call. So real quick. Where I'm going to go, I think the solution to this language problem in the social culture is to actually cut all the funding, public funding, to the colleges. Because what they're doing in the colleges, they're actually redefining certain things. They're redefining, if you, if you look in the textbooks, they're actually rewording the amendments. The Second Amendment is the most common one. Mm-hmm. They are redefining what fascism is. They have turned it from a left-wing ideology to a right-wing ideology in all, the, in all the dictionaries past 2009. They are redefining the term racism. Mm-hmm. So it only applies to people that are the majority in the country. Right. And the thing is, it's, it's extremely dangerous right now. And we're, we're not, with our tax money, we are paying for this. We are yes. paying for terrorists to come in yeah. and absolutely rename everything that we know to be true they are brainwashing these people and that's why they come out in the social structure it's so different that is why they feel so uh empowered to attack us and that is why we feel so empowered to bash them right back Hmm. and the only solution is to cut it is to cut the head off and you have to get rid of these professors you have to you have to do something. If Trump could do something about it, similar to that rule he made with the VA where you can fire people now, but for the colleges, I think a lot of this would end within a generation. And that's the only way to do it, is by doing something about it. And something in this case happens to be removing it by force. No other way. 
It's uh, an interesting idea made possible by the fact that force was initiated to create the public education system in the first place. Appreciate your call as always, Anthony. And it, his insights remind me of Fahrenheit 451, which my, you know, I must confess I have not read. I watched the uh, the HBO version of it, which was pretty bad. It was not a good movie. And I realized after I watched it why it wasn't good. Because Fahrenheit 451 is about what Anthony was just talking about. It's about the redefinition of words, the rewriting of history, the burning of books, the shutting down of speech. And that's what the left is doing. That's what the political left is doing. And like he pointed out, fascism is a creature of the political left. And so, you know, the idea of Nazis burning books is a natural outgrowth of where the left is at. Look at what they're doing right now. We're going to come back and talk about what's happening with Alex Jones. The, the burning down of ideas you don't like. And the reason why the HBO movie sucked is because they had to tiptoe around the fact that this is a leftist ideology. They really couldn't dig into it. They really couldn't display it for what it was. And they tried to twist it into some sort of allegory for conservatism and Donald Trump. And that doesn't work. It doesn't ring true because they're the ones who are trying to shut things down. 651-989-5855. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. Closing argument. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. My name is Walter Hudson. We're streaming at TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com and your iHeartRadio app. We're here 9 to 11 weeknights. Appreciate you joining us. You can join in on the conversation at 651-989-5855. Brad Oman takes those calls and produces the show. Let's go to Matthew in Minneapolis. Welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for having me on. Anytime. Um, so I was listening to your program. I apologize. I'm not a regular listener. Um, what was your name again? Walter. Walter, hello. Um, and oh, I was, I literally laughed out loud at one point. I think it was at the Cultural Marxist Revolution. Um, speaking of arguing in bad faith, this seems just like a gigantic straw man and... Uh, I don't know why one would uh, write off the entire opposition as not being willing to listen. That seems ridiculous. Well, I mean, okay. So, first of all, accepting that there are individuals who are going to dissent from uh, any given mainstream status quo, the means by which we can judge what the proverbial left believes is the the asserted statements and positions taken by the institutional leaders. And the New York Times is very clearly, I would posit, one of those leaders. And they've just made a huge statement by hiring an open anti-white racist and then defending that hire and then standing by it. And the you know, you, you can accuse me of utilizing a straw man argument, but I'm responding very specifically to the justification that's been offered for both that hire and the retention of it, which is that racism isn't actually a thing unless white people are the ones doing it. I'm sorry, who defined it that way? <laughs> okay. The New York Times, uh, Sarah Jung, 
Uh, this guy writing for Vox by the name of, what do we got here, Zach Blutchamp. I mean, you know, I, I, I don't got time to Google it for you here on the air, but I, basically everyone. I, don't, I haven't seen anybody on the left who has taken the position that she's actually a racist and should be treated as such. Um, I, I know if, if, I might, if I ask, uh, are you familiar with context, you would say yes. But um, are you familiar with how she responded when asked about this? Fill us in. Um, she said that it was um, responding to some people who were saying similar things about her, and it wasn't meant to, meant for a general audience. And if she um, had to do it over, she regrets um, using that form of language. Okay. And so, what's your so point? I, so, I think it's ridiculous but, but that's that's not the reason none of that is what has been cited as why it's okay what's been cited as why it's okay is that white people can't be racist that's the dominant narrative and so what i'm suggesting is if that's what you believe if you believe and, and perhaps you are a dissenter from this view in which case i celebrate you but if if what's being posited is we don't need to worry about racist statements made by non-whites because non-whites are, are the oppressed rather than the oppressor, then you can't tell me you're actually concerned about racism as such. What you're actually concerned about is a revolution over what you've defined as the oppressor class. Well, excuse me. I remember um, you and uh, Caller to talking about the objective definition of words. Correct. Words don't have objective definitions. They have usages. Okay, so, all right, so let, let's, all right, we can play this rhetorical game all night. Here's the bottom line. The purpose of communication is to accurately convey ideas, right? And so if we're going to engage in a good faith debate, then the, we have to define our terms, and we have to be utilizing the same definitions. And so if you're intentionally using a definition of racism that is different than the one that I'm using, and you know it, then you're not acting in good faith. And that's my accusation against the left. Sure, but you might. One could also say that if you're using a definition that they're not, then you're acting in poor faith. Right, but my, but my I, definition I here's the difference. Here's the difference. My definition is the actual definition, right? Like racism is a real thing that we've understood to be a certain specific thing for decades and centuries. We know what racism is. It's generalizations maintained in spite of evidence to the contrary based upon somebody's racial identity alone. That's what it is. There is no utility of any alternative definition unless you're actually trying to do something other than attack racism as such, which is what the left is doing, which, to, to, which is why I'm saying they, they don't actually believe, they're not actually opposed to racism. What they're opposed to is the same thing they've always been opposed to, which is their political opposition. And they're utilizing an alternative definition of racism in order to conflate reality and sow confusion amongst the populace in order to advance the same revolutionary goal that they've always had, which has nothing whatsoever to do with actually excising racism as such from our society. If they were interested in excising racism as such from our society, then they would be focused on treating people as individuals and recognizing them and treating not just in rhetoric, but also in policy, which we know they're not interested in. All their policies are based upon class and identity politics and what group you happen to be a part of 
of, and you know we're gonna we're gonna treat you differently because you're you're white and because you're heterosexual and because you're cisgender and because of this that and the other thing. All they care about is group identity, and so this notion that they somehow some have some sort of moral opposition to the to the concept of generalizations based upon groups is patently absurd on its face. I completely disagree. And do you hold the opinion that every word only has one definition? I, I hold the opinion that if we're going to engage in communication with the goal of actually understanding what it is that we're talking about between each other, we have to we have to define our terms and arrive at common definitions. Now, I agree. You're, you, you know, what you're you're trying to possible one, Matthew. What utility is there in a definition of racism that's other than what I gave you? Um, in the case of defining it as you know, something similar to prejudice plus power, I think that there's a lot of utility in using that definition on talking about um, like institutionalized racism and tackling it on a much broader scale. So the, the, the point that I'm getting after is that when you know that that's not what the other person hears when you say that, when you, when you know that you're engaged in a conflation of two very different definitions that are utilizing the same word, isn't there a lack of good faith in the discourse? But the situation is symmetric. Each person is using right, but, but what you're pretending you're pretending as though these two different definitions are on equal terms, are on equal ground. They're not. They are. they are not. The definition that I'm dealing with is the definition that has stood the test of time. The definition that you're bringing to the table is one that has creeped in in recent years in an effort to affect a very specific political goal. And by the way, is also completely misaligned with rational observations of reality. So I, it, in other words, your definition doesn't stand up the test of scrutiny for one and two. It's it's not, it doesn't get after what MLK was getting after was let's treat each other based on, let's judge each other as individuals based upon the content of our character rather than the color of our skins. So I very much appreciate the call. I hope you call back, Matthew. Six five one nine eight nine five eight five five. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk AM eleven thirty one zero three five FM. Twin Cities News Talk dot com. Well, that was a fascinating call with Matthew. There, I do hope he'll call back because you know those types of the best calls we have. You know, not to offend any of you regular callers who join us on a on a regular basis. I appreciate all you. But I enjoy the calls from lefties, especially thoughtful ones, because they, they provoke, they get down to the root of what it is that we're trying to talk about here on the program. And what I was fascinated by, you know, I'll have to go back and listen to it, but it sounded like he called up to accuse me of arguing against a straw man. But then once we got into talking about what racism is, he articulated precisely the definition that I was arguing against. So I'm confused. Is it a straw man, or is that what leftists actually believe racism is? Closing argument. My name's Walter Edson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, 651-989-5855. Let's talk to Jane in St. Paul. Thanks for holding. Hi, Walter. Um, listen, I have to tell you, your show has become one of my favorites. And uh, I hope even the reruns, I enjoy the reruns. I recognize them, and I even enjoy them but thank you anyway my thing is um i think there are certain words in our english language that are just really 
dripping with um, uh, incendiary meaning. And the word racism is one of them. Mm -hmm. And I just feel sometimes that some of the people that use that word, and not so much in a truly uh, political sense, um, because I think they know what the word is and what it means, but I think everyday people, they don't understand that um, when they say these words, that they do have effect on other people, and they think that effect is that they're going to have a shock value and that person will go away and maybe reconsider their feelings and so on and so forth. And it just takes away, the, it stops the conversation right there. There isn't anything that goes forward that, that really has any real meaning in a conversational sense. Well, and, and it's not meant to. And that was kind of the point that I was getting into with Matthew, is that the... You, you cannot claim to be interested in a discourse and a discussion and a conversation when you're purposely trying to, to put up roadblocks to understanding and expression. And that's, and that's what I see the left doing on a regular basis. And again, you know, we come back to, on the other side of uh, this hour and the next hour, we'll get into what's happening with Alex Jones, who's a guy that I don't agree with a whole bunch. You know, a guy who I found to be pretty outrageous. But what's happening to him is a prime example of this. You know, in, in, instead of engaging, instead of dealing with the the merits of the speech, it's let's let's shut them down or confuse. You know, put this kind of rhetorical smokescreen up with the alternative definitions of words uh, in order to confiscate or uh, to confuse the issue. My brother always says, um, the person that controls the verbiage can, has the power. Correct. And so for whatever reason, um, I, I, I just find it, you know, I almost feel like, um, you know, we should be saying to them, what do you mean racism? Right. Well, and that's exactly what I'm advocating for. I appreciate the call, Jade. That's exactly what I'm advocating for, is we need to stop. Look, and, and, here's, and, that's, and that's what I would say to Matthew, is, is listen, if you're going to come at me with a definition of racism, that isn't the prevalent definition that Martin Luther King Jr. utilized, right? If you're not, that, that isn't the definition that won the day in the civil rights movement. If you're coming with me some other definition of the word, then you, you have to declare that. You have to expound, you have to be honest about what your term is and what it means and, and acknowledge that it's different than what I'm talking about. It's something completely different from what I'm talking about because otherwise you're, you're, conflating and confusing the issue. Let's talk to Paul in Minneapolis. Welcome to the program. Paul, how's it going? All right. Hello, am I on? Yep, you are. Hey, well, um, thanks for your exacting use of words and definitions and meanings. So I really appreciate that. I try. I'm calling about um, the lament that uh, I, I see certain parts of the linguistic, um, you know, field being surrendered to youth. And so what I'm noticing, I work with uh, young people and also have young people in my life. And on a number of occasions, I'm starting to hear them say things like, well, I'm just a skinny white kid who would want to hire me anyway, or, you know, a disparaging comment about being uh, white and who they are. Mm -hmm. and then um, a sense of defeatism. And yeah. I'm just realizing, wow, um, it's That's traveling deep within our youth in a way that, frankly, makes me sad. Um, you know, question is, are you good at calculus? Are you good at learning? Are you kind to other people? Right. But they're caught in this microweb of 
guilt and judgment. Yeah, and that's intentional. I, I appreciate the call, Paul. Yeah, and, and it works both ways. We've talked before about how insidious and profoundly immoral it is that the left has this culture of grievance and this, this culture of conquest in which there are only two categories of person. There's the, the conqueror and the conquered the oppressor and the oppressed, and you're either one or the other. And we we focus frequently on the way in which this undercuts and hobbles the sense of self-worth amongst those who they would categorize as the oppressed. You know, somebody who who lives in disadvantaged conditions is brought up to believe that they can't possibly do anything about it, that they that they are of less worth than they actually are in order to serve a political end, which is horrific. But on the flip side of that, the people who fall into the, quote, oppressor class, unquote, are also also hobbled. They're also made to feel bad about themselves for being an oppressor. Both are made to feel worse. Both are made to, made to feel less capable, and that's immoral. TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. I want to get into this situation with Alex Jones and InfoWars, but before we do, I want to circle back around to this exchange that I had uh, with Matthew, a caller last hour. We've been talking about the Sarah Jung story, this... uh, individual who was hired by the New York Times to be part of their editorial board who has some past tweets and statements that are clearly objectively anti-white racism and these have been defended in a variety of ways and you know the the chief overriding narrative in response to the controversy from the left has been look this is okay because it's a non-white person saying it and because white people are the objects of critique of scrutiny it's okay for non-white people to say what sounds like racist things against white people because they the of the power dynamic right and we had this exchange with matthew you know wherein we debated amongst other things strangely enough whether or not words can have multiple definitions and i concede of course they can right the english language i, I would love to learn other languages just so I can test this hypothesis that I have that English is actually a really crappy language. <laughs> I, I strongly suspect that English on the, on, when compared to others is a particularly crappy language because of this fact that one word often means very many different things depending on the context and how it's used, which can be confusing when you're trying to communicate. Well, a lot of problems with older languages like Spanish, for example, they don't have a word for a lot of new words. Sure. Um, so English is very malleable in that sense, but a lot of older languages can't accommodate for that change, so it makes it hard to adapt and truly say what you're trying to say in sure. a 21st century way. That, that being aside... The problem that I have, acknowledging that, of course, words can have multiple definitions. The problem I have with the choice by the left to utilize this particular definition of racism that they're employing, whereby it has this systemic power dynamic implications and it's rooted in institutions and and the, the conflict between the oppressor and the oppressed. The problem I have with utilizing that definition in the public discourse, in a debate about the culture and about public policy, is that loaded into that definition are 
the very premise is under dispute, right? I mean, when you when you come into an argument on a given topic and you start making arguments that the premise that of the argument is the conclusion that's under debate, that's disingenuous, right? Like you can't you can't skip to your conclusion and then move forward in the debate as if it's self-evidently true. And that's what that definition of racism does. The whole thing under dispute is whether or not you get to initiate force based upon some imagined power dynamic. And so if you're going to come to the table with a definition of racism that assumes that to be true, then you're not arguing in good faith. And this is something that we have to put our foot down with. We cannot allow this. When I talk about letting the left define the terms of debate, that's what I'm talking about. They get to define through their use of language and through the twisted definitions that they're bringing to the table. They get to define what all the premises are that we're going to proceed our discussion utilizing. And that doesn't work because many of those premises, if not all of them, are specifically what's under dispute. Their dictionary must have been written by Howard Zinn. Exactly. Along with the, pe- the People's Dictionary of, by Howard Zinn. All right. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 1035 FM. Streaming on com and your iHeartRadio app. We're here 9 to 11 weeknights. You can catch past shows by doing a search for closing argument in our iHeartRadio app. And those will pop right up for you. We've had some good ones as of late, if I do say so myself, uh, fueled mostly by your calls at 651-989-5855. Brad Oman takes those calls and produces the show. So, from USA Today, it was a tough Monday morning for Alex Jones. He found his radio and video show and other content produced by his far-right site InfoWars removed from Apple Facebook, Spotify, and YouTube. The cumulative actions represent the largest efforts yet against Jones, a conspiracy theorist who most famously promoted the idea that the 2012 Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting never happened and was staged. Several families affected by the shooting and an FBI agent who responded to the attack have sued Jones for defamation. He is seeking to have the cases dismissed. Facebook said on Monday that four pages belonging to Jones were removed for violating the social network's policy against hate speech. This is what we're going to focus on here as we move forward in our analysis of this. Hate speech. That's why they removed it. Also on Monday, the entirety of hundreds of episodes of the Alex Jones show had been removed from music streaming service Spotify. Those takedown actions came hours after Apple late Sunday removed all episodes of the show hosted by Jones and four other InfoWars-related products from Apple's iTunes and podcast apps. And later Monday, YouTube removed Jones and InfoWars channels from the video-sharing service, with some pages labeled with the declaration the account was terminated for violating community guidelines. Until Monday, the major tech companies had been slow to remove Jones' content despite a stated aim of halting the spread of fabricated news as they tried to stave off claims that they were censoring political voices. Facebook, facing criticism for InfoWars' presence on the site, detailed a policy of pushing down disputed posts so fewer users would see them while removing content for violating policies on hate speech and harassment. Spreading false news wasn't reason enough to boot a user from the site, the executive said. Instead, tech companies have pointed to a breach of policies against hate speech rather than misinformation for removing Jones. Spotify removed several episodes of the Alex Jones show last week, citing violations of its policy against hateful speech. 
Online sentiment had been building against Spotify for days after subscribers found the episode's listing on the service. David French has a piece over the New York Times that kind of gets to the heart of this. And he starts off much in the way that I would by declaring that Alex Jones is a, well, as he puts it, loathsome conspiracy theorist who generates loathsome content. There is no First Amendment violation when a private company chooses to boot anyone off a private platform. And it seems reasonably clear that Mr. Jones' content isn't just morally repugnant, it's also legally problematic. He makes wild, false claims that may well cross the line into libel and slander. And then he goes on to recount the Sandy Hook situation that we just heard about and also what just happened in terms of his content being removed. And then he continues, there are reasons to be deeply concerned that the tech companies banned Alex Jones. In short, the problem isn't exactly what they did, it's why they did it. Rather than applying objective standards that resonate with American law and American traditions of respect for free speech in the marketplace of ideas, the companies applied subjective standards that are subject to considerable abuse. Apple said it does not tolerate hate speech. Facebook accused Mr. Jones of violating policies against glorifying violence or using dehumanizing language to describe people who are transgender Muslims and immigrants. YouTube accused Mr. Jones of violating policies against hate speech and harassment. These policies sound good on first reading, but they are extraordinarily vague. We live in times when the slightest deviation from the latest and ever-changing social justice style guide is deemed bigoted and, yes, dehumanizing. We live in a world where the Southern Poverty Law Center, a formerly respected civil rights organization, abuses its past trust to label a host of mainstream organizations and individuals as hate groups, white nationalists, or anti-Muslim extremists, based, on, based sometimes on disagreements about theology or sexual morality, or sometimes on outright misreadings or misrepresentations of an individual's beliefs and views. And then he gives a couple of examples of that. And then he says, one doesn't even have to look to big tech to see the almost infinite malleability of the hate speech libel or label. In the name of stopping hate speech, university mobs have turned their ire not just against alt-right figures like Milo Yiannopoulos and Richard Spencer, but also against the most mainstream of conservative voices like Ben Shapiro and Heather McDonald. Dissenting progressives aren't spared either. Just ask Evergreen State College's Brett Weinstein, who was hounded out of a job after refusing to participate in a day of absence protest in which white students and faculty members were supposed to leave campus for the day to give students and faculty members of color exclusive access to the college. The good news is that tech companies don't have to rely on vague, malleable, and hotly contested definitions of hate speech to deal with conspiracy theorists like Mr. Jones. The far better option would be to prohibit libel or slander on their platforms. And then he gets them talking about how, you know, libel and slander are things that can actually be proven in a court of law. They're objective. You can determine whether or not somebody has actually lied in a damaging fashion about another person. And that's why we have laws to that effect. And it's preferable to removing them for violating supposed hate speech codes because you can't tell me what hate speech is. Right? I mean, how define hate speech. In short, in a way that's clear, in a way that I, as, as somebody who's not defining it, can take your definition and then apply it consistently to whatever set of circumstances I find myself judging. I'll wait. It is a, it is a built-in, 
the the terminology has a built-in political bias to it and all it is is it's a it's an excuse to be able to exclude opinion and exclude voices because you disagree with their point of view and listen it's true facebook twitter all these companies they do have the right to do this it's odd though it's interesting isn't it Starbucks doesn't have the right to require their customers to pay for coffee before using the restroom. A Christian baker doesn't have the right to decline service to provide a cake for a gay wedding, which violates his religious conscience. But, you know, Facebook can kick Alex Jones off its site. And again, going back to uh, the, the scenario with Sarah Jung and the New York Times, we have to ask ourselves, is the freedom of association something that is is being universally applied here? And the answer is obvious. Of course it's not. Of course it's not. It's being apl- applied selectively and in context which advance the revolutionary agenda. And that's a problem. And listen, I'm not saying the state should step in here. There's a piece over at uh, Daily Wire that's actually quite concerning that we can get into here momentarily about the amount of support that there is for Donald Trump to step in and do something about this and do something about the fake news generally. This is not an area where the government should step in, but nonetheless, it is a concern and it is something that we should be talking about and applying social pressure on because whether it's, whether it's a violation of a person's free speech rights to have their profile removed or their channel taken off YouTube or whatever. It's not right. Like it's not a first amendment violation, but it is a violation of the spirit of free expression. It's an exercise in what our friend Zach from Lionel Lakes would call the religion of power, right? Where, where you're saying you're, you're determining in a authoritarian fashion, what the quality of ideas are rather than allowing the quality to be fettered out through the marketplace of ideas. People weren't having... Look, before this weekend, nobody was having any trouble ascertaining whether or not Alex Jones was somebody they should be listening to. Right? I mean, is there anybody out there who was confused as to who Alex Jones is and what what the quality of his content was? Is there anybody who's been edified and educated and their, their life has been made better now? In a, in a way that they couldn't have accomplished on their own simply by not exposing themselves to Alex Jones. If you don't want to see things posted from InfoWars, there's a little, there's a little, you know, three, three periods up there next to every post you can click on says hide post from the source. There you go. Block it. You'll never have to see it. Right. <laughs> but no, Facebook's got to do it for you. Twitter's got to do it for you. YouTube's got to do it for you. This is a problem. And when we have a culture like this that is opposed to the concept of free expression, it's going to inevitably end up in our politics. We are going to end up seeing public policies that are based. And we saw the intellectual justification for it last week in another piece from the New York Times, wherein several left-wing intellectuals made the case against the freedom of speech as such, saying that it's been weaponized, saying that it's something that's, that's benefiting the powerful at the expense of the powerless. So the intellectual justification is already there the cultural motivation has now developed to support shutting down speech the enacting of laws is the next step 651-989-5855 closing argument my name is walter Edson. twin cities news talk am 1130 1035 fm twin cities news talk.com 
something to say about Alex Jones being excised from all the social media platforms, all the big ones. You know, I, I, this is, this doesn't hurt him, right? Like he's temporarily perhaps, but this is only, look, I personally, I have been a consumer off and on of Alex Jones commentary for years, going back to 2001. And it's always been with a high, I've, I've never taken anything that he had to say seriously. It's always been a high degree of entertainment value. I've always understood, you know, it's like when you pick up the, the National Enquirer or the Sun or any other supermarket tabloid, you know what you're getting, right? It's not, it's not, uh, there's no ambiguity. You're not like, oh, it, this is all the news that's fit to print right here at InfoWars. I knew exactly what I was getting. And my interest in it had waned significantly. Now, though, I, fi- I find myself strangely on Alex's side tonight. And I, I'm not sure that's going to change anytime soon. Not that I think that the, con- the quality of his content is any different than it was last before this weekend. But because of the oppression that he's enduring from these institutions, we have something in common. We now have a common cause. Let's talk to 651-989-5855 is the number to join us. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. Let's talk to who's first here, Pete in Bloomington. Welcome to the program. Hey, I wanted to admit uh, I'm kind of guilty like you. I have watched them and. And it is entertainment. I kind of think of him as like kind of like George Norrie, you know, yeah, one of these right, uh, late right. night guys. Yeah. And and and, I, and my other thing is, is it really worth worrying about? I understand they could do this to other people, but if they do this to people who are more legitimate, let's say it like that, mm-hmm. don't they risk of alienating their audience and then the marketplace takes over? I don't think they care. You end up with a conservative version of Facebook. I don't think they care. I think they, I think they are, I think they, first of all, feel as though they're insulated from competition by the simultaneous effort. Cause that's the other thing is right now, parallel to this, you have a concerted effort. I'll have to look up the article during one of the breaks we had in our sack last week. But there's a concerted effort making its way through the Senate right now in Washington, D.C. to lock down editorial control of the Internet. And so, you know, they, they want to they see the opportunity here to establish a monopoly on these platforms and start kicking people off who they don't think are worthy of being part of the discourse. And, of course, they're going to go for Alex Jones first. You, of course, you go for the person who's most outrageous, who the least amount of people are likely to come to the defense, you know, who who's going to create the least amount of waves. You go after that person first in order to set the precedent, and then you go after the next person, and you associate them with the first. So the next person they go after is going to be like, look, this this whoever the next one is, let's say it's Milo Yiannopoulos. We're going after Yiannopoulos because he's just as bad as Alex Jones, or he's bad enough to have met the the standard that we've established with Alex Jones. And then they just keep creeping the standard forward and forward and forward until it crosses over you and me. Now, don't we already see what's going on? Facebook is already starting to lose money. Their stock's devaluable. CNN's having viewership trouble. Uh, you know, and, and these guys fought Trump, and I hate to say it, but Trump's winning. I love to see it, actually. Trump's winning because... They're not doing anything to him, throwing blood at him. He's costing them millions and millions of dollars, and they want to keep fighting him. He'll keep fighting them, and I think he wins, and they lose. They lose viewership because he's telling people the truth. 
maybe a hard truth to accept, but the truth is, is there's a lot of fake news. The media is aligned up against conservatives, and they're promoting their very liberal agenda. And America's woken up to it, and we can really thank Trump for that. I appreciate the thoughts, as always, Pete. Appreciate you calling in the program. Let's go to Greg in Columbia Heights. Welcome to the program. Hey, uh, Walter. Uh, you're a top-flight logical thinker, and I'm trying to pull an Elvis here and jump the Snake River Canyon with some logic. Maybe you can either blow me out or um, kind of kind of go with this. But I'm thinking, um, as I'm thinking about these platforms, Twitter, Apple, and Facebook, and, and the rest, they are maybe privately held mm-hmm. and run, but yet they're open as businesses uh, earning money off the public. Mm-hmm. And if they are discriminating, if it can be proven, mm-hmm. say, let's say, because of your conservative thought, we're getting rid of, we're going to just discriminate against, against you. Now, what I'm trying to connect is the bakers back in Colorado right. who said, no, this is a religious thing, but yet they were sued. And, um, and, so can't we make this kind of a, a, a leap and say, okay, you're going to do this, you're going to discriminate based on political thought. Well, you're you're a, a private company, but yet you're open um, to the, you know to the public, doing business in the public market. Mm-hmm. So therefore, we're going to file class action lawsuits against you. Now, I'm I'm probably missing the logic connection that way, but I'm thinking it can be made. What do you think? I'm sure it can. I would not support it. I'm not a big fan of adopting right. the flawed moral premises of the left in order to and trying to weaponize them and turn them back against them and you fight fire with fire. No, because, I'm, I'm just thinking, Walter, I know exactly, but I'm thinking that you can dangle that little worm in front of them uh-huh. and maybe uh, kind of go, whoa, maybe we should back off on this because it no. could be devastating if it was taken that direction. Sure. No, I appreciate the call. I appreciate Thanks, the Walter. thought. Yep. No, you're not going to get any headway with that because they're never going to admit that. that look, you're, n- you're not going to get them to become ashamed of their hypocrisy because they don't care that they're hypocrites. Like that, to, to them, that's, it's, there is no, there's no basis upon which to be ashamed of the hypocrisy of their positions and their moral premises. Because in their mind, what makes a person the only determining factor, this is the, one of the fundamental pillars of the intersexual minority paradigm what grants you moral authority is not your argument it's not the quality of your ideas it's not whether or not you're you're right or wrong in the rational objective sense what grants you moral authority is your status so if you're a minority if you're in the oppressed class if you're in the victim class then you have moral authority prima facie automatic no questions asked cannot be opposed that's it. Like it, do, it doesn't matter what your argument is. It doesn't matter if you're a hypocrite. It doesn't matter if your prescribed principles apply differently in different contexts and, and aren't workable in the real world. All that matters is you're on the right side of the, you know, to, to, to trigger Matthew tonight, Marxist revolution. That's what they're concerned with. We'll talk with Bob and Barry when we return. 651-989-5855. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, Let's go right to your calls. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. Streaming at TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com and your iHeartRadio app. We're here 9 to 11 weeknights. 651-989-5855 is the number to join the queue. Brett Ullman takes those calls and produces the show. Let's go to Bob in Minneapolis. Thanks for holding. 
Uh, hi, Walter. First-time listener, first-time caller. I'm quite impressed. Oh, great. Uh, you, you hit it on the head when you you know, subjective versus objective. You know, something that I've taught my multiple daughters over the years is when you look at an issue, look at intellectual diversity. Have the ability to debate pro-life as well as the ability to, to debate pro-choice. And what's really interesting here is I had a recent example where I was measuring the hypocrisy within Facebook. Samantha B. recently used the C word very openly, was never condemned right. by any really party by it. Right. And so I took those exact words and I put it, those words back into her Facebook feed. Mm-hmm. I said, good morning, Samantha. Welcome to the world of using the word and then that word and then pasted her quote. Mm-hmm. An individual within the Facebook community deemed that as hate speech and also misogynistic right. venom against her right. and any of the female followers, right. which they put me on three days probation. Yeah, No just cause to it. Mm-hmm. But what's really remarkable in this conversation is we want to look at equality for all. And equity is, is creeping into this equality conversation, but let's just simply look at equality. You have athletes now that are identifying as a particular gender competing against women. Right. Now, as a supporter of Title IX, having daughters, my daughters compete in that arena. Mm-hmm. So the question I ask is whose rights are greater and whose equality is deemed more important? Mm-hmm. The women that fought for that ability to be in that football right. <laughs> or the young woman or the young man who chooses to either use testosterone or gender right. identification right. to beat that woman whose equality was being sought. Right. That's the conundrum we're in. And it's going back to the subjective versus the objective mm-hmm. you know, application in any word, any discussion, any issue we want to, right. to, to, to put in a, a public platform. We're in dangerous times. Yeah. You know, and I, I guess right now I'm, pe- I'm preaching to the choir you and your listeners, but we need to wake up mm-hmm. to the oversensitivity, the microaggression that's being fed to our young kids. Yeah, I appreciate the thoughts, Bob, very well articulated. Yeah, it's there's a lot of of threads that I could pull on there, um, but the one that that jumps to mind is you know when you're when you're dealing with this question of who's which pigs are more equal, right? <laughs> who's Who's going to be more equal today? Whose equality matters more? It's a peculiar way of phrasing it, isn't it? Whose equality matters more? Now, of course, that's a that's a nonsensical way of phrasing it. You know, the the in in truth, if equality is a thing, and here we go back to I know it's confusing, I know it's offensive to some, but the objective definition of words, if equality has any sort of utility in our our desire to communicate with each other then it has to mean what it means. It has to mean being equal, being uh, having being of equal wor- worth, having equal rights that apply equally in similar circumstances, right? And under those conditions, under the condition of liberty, which is the only condition wherein people are actually equal under the law, the determination of whose views get to prevail is objective and simple. Who owns the premises? Whose property is it? They get to decide. So in the instance of a, a, a team you know, or, or a league 
uh, of uh, women's sports, you know, women's soccer, women's baseball, softball, whatever it is, the the association of individuals who run that league get to decide whether or not it's going to be a woman's league or a pseudo woman's league that allows men who want to call themselves women to be a part of it. End of story. End of discussion. No further discussion needs to be had. They get to decide because they own it. They're in charge of it. It belongs to them. That's the simple, objective way to settle these disputes of who who gets to have their feelings affirmed today. Well, who owns the place? That's who. Let's talk to Sam in Plymouth. Thanks for holding on. Hey, Walter. Thanks for having me on. Um, So... Alex Jones obviously recently gotten kicked off of all this social media. Yeah. And I am a member of a group that uh, he got kicked off of for apparent hate speech against us on Muslim. Mm-hmm. And first off, I want to thank you for defending individual rights, common sense, and the Constitution when it comes to us. No not problem. losing your mind over like some conservatives do. <laughs> um, but this is very dangerous for all the minority groups they're trying to protect because I can no longer humanize myself in the marketplace of ideas. Right. And so now I cannot interact with people who hate me mm. and I cannot change their mind. And wow. Facebook is now making things to where they're going to, they're going to continue to stew. They're going to continue to say these things. Right. And I, as a ambassador of right. myself and uh, whatever kind of humanity I have, I can't address it now. Yeah, that's and my and my fate is tied to the fate of the left in this country, and that's the most dastardly thing. Yeah, it really is. Wow, so I really appreciate that point. And I appreciate you making the call. That's a great angle at which to uh, analyze it. Is the the angle of somebody who is supposedly part of the oppressed class, right? You know, Sam as a Muslim is one of the oppressed. He's being oppressed by the dominant culture. And now you've taken an aspect of that supposedly dominant culture, which I don't know if Alex Jones is the dominant culture, but it's certainly in the in the left's perspective, he's part of the problem, right? And you've excluded them from your platform. You've excluded them from the public discourse. And so now Sam doesn't get to engage with them. He doesn't get to engage with them. He doesn't get to interact and to potentially change their mind. There's a documentary on Netflix right now. I think it's called... Um, Oh, I forget. Something about the white right. I'll look it up during the break. But it's this great documentary where this female Muslim filmmaker goes around, and I don't know how she arranged this or how she survived it. She goes around and she interviews white nationalists and attends their rallies and attends their functions. And she sits down and talks with these guys. And over the course of this two-hour documentary, she changes their minds and she doesn't do she she doesn't go into it with the objective of changing their minds you know what changes their mind about her and about muslims generally it's not an argument that she offers it's not her shouting them down and calling them racists and making them feel bad about themselves it's having a cordial peaceful good faith interaction with another human being who breaks their stereotypes that's what does it. That's what wears them down. And they and they say, you know, the three or four of them who have these kind of epiphanies and to some degree or another come out of their white nationalism, each of them say something to the effect of, You're, you, you, I had to change my mind because I met you and because you 
broke the mold in terms of what I thought about people like you. And it's through the interaction, it's through the conversation, it's through the relationship that I changed my mind. And that's always how it works. That's always how it works. And this is another way, you know, going back to how I started the show tonight. This is another piece of evidence that demonstrates that the left isn't actually interested in solving these problems. Because how do we solve racism? How do we solve stereotypes? How do we solve bigotry? It's not through ignorance. It's not through shutting people out. It's not through shutting the door on bad ideas. It's by engaging them. It's by developing relationships. It's by assuming that there is something of value to gain by engaging in a free interaction and allowing the marketplace of ideas to work. That's how you solve it. You know, I remember as a, as a black kid moving to a predominantly white school. You know, I moved from, from Michigan to Minnesota when I was uh, 12, 13 years old, somewhere in there, eighth grade. Went to Oltman Junior High over there in uh, St. Paul Park on the east side. And I showed up. And, you know, one, one of the only people of color in the school. And after a few months, I was sitting at a table with a bunch of guys, all white, who I'd come to, to eat lunch with on a regular basis. And at one point, one of them says, you know, Walter, and he was totally sincere. He did not, he had no, this was not intended to be, you know, <laughs> an attack or there was no irony in how he said this. This was 100% sincere. He said, Walter, we were so racist before we met you. <laughs> and he meant it as a compliment. He meant it as, wow, that this is great that we actually got to know somebody who's black. And so now we know that, that our assumptions are not correct. That's how it happens. That's how, it's, how racism is actually combated, through relationship. And the left isn't interested in that. In fact, they're opposed to it. They want to stop it. They punish people for trying to engage in it. 651-989-5855. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 1135 FM. Twin Cities News Talk. FM. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. 651-989-5855, the number to join us. Try to squeeze in a last comment or observation before we're off the air for the evening. We'll be back tomorrow, 9 to 11 weeknights. It's always great having you with us. There is another side to this whole free speech issue, free expression issue that's been brought to the fore by the expulsion, the excommunication of Alex Jones and InfoWars and all related brands from various big social media platforms like Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and the like. And the other side of this is the, the blowback that is coming from the right in terms of you know how far people are willing to go in order to fight back against the fake news and fight back against these institutions on the political and cultural left. Joseph Curl, writing over the Daily Wire, says, Everything's about to get really, really weird. A new Epsos poll provided exclusively to the Daily Beast finds that 43% self-identified Republicans say they think, quote, the president should have the authority to close news outlets engaged in bad behavior, unquote. 
43%. That is insane. The, uh, the, the poll expounds only 36% disagreed with that statement. When asked if Trump should close down specific outlets, including CNN, The Washington Post, and The New York Times, nearly a quarter of Republicans, 23%, agreed, and 49% disagreed. Republicans were far more likely to take a negative view of the media. 48% of them said they believed the news media is the enemy of the American people, while nearly four out of every five said they believe the mainstream media treats President Trump unfairly. Now, you know, look, those two things... I really could care less as to whether or not you agree with those statements. That first one, though, the president of the United States should have the authority to close news outlets engaged in bad behavior. That's worse than what Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube is doing. That that's that's a level of first of all, like just the idea that the government in any form at any level should be able to shut down. Any news outlet is bad in and of itself, but then to take it to the level of we're going to appoint one man from on high and cloak him in the exclusive unilateral power to do it, that's pretty much as bad as you can get in terms of violations of the sentiment of the First Amendment and, you know, ultimately, if it were enacted, an actual violation of the First Amendment. I'm pretty shocked that 43% of self-identified Republicans agreed with that statement. Democrats, of course, didn't have the same feeling. Just 12% of self-identified Democrats think the president should have the authority to close news outlets engaged in bad behavior. Now, when you look at that, 12 versus 43, you know, it's pretty pretty big disparity. But even 12, like that, even that number is insane. Like it, it should be three, like 3%. Because there's 3% of, you know, any given group of people in a room are dumb, right? I, 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 can, I think that's an acceptable Rule of thumb. Half of all people you know are below average. <laughs> and so if it was only like three, four, five, somewhere in the single digits who believe this, I wouldn't be concerned. But when it starts to creep up to 12, and certainly when it creeps up to 43, I begin to be concerned about the, the future health of our republic. Let's talk to Carl in Minneapolis. Welcome to the program. Hey, thank you for taking my call. Yeah. What's up? Hey, uh, I just wanted to mention as part of this discussion that uh, from my best understanding is that uh, outlets like Facebook and Twitter have some sort of uh, immunity from certain prosecutions to things like libel and slander um, because they are listed right now as some sort of neutral public forum. That's news to me. I don't know how that would apply in this case at any rate, but what, what are you getting yeah. after? Well, I'm just saying is that 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 they 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 right now, and I know uh, I believe Ted Cruz was talking about that during the Senate hearings uh, with Mark Zuckerberg mm-hmm. um, that they they qualify for that exemption as they as they are currently set up now. But if they aren't maintaining some level of neutrality, right? I see what you're saying. There, right? Yeah, right. in other words, this this is something that, that Ben Shapiro has talked about quite extensively. It's the difference between a platform and a publisher. And, you know, as a platform, which is what these social media brands have described themselves as, if you're a platform, then you are neutral in terms of what the users of that platform choose to use it for. You know, because we all, we all get to choose who our friends are, what pages we like, what posts we're going to have in our news feed. We all have the option to opt out of anything that comes across 
our social media news feeds. And so no, nothing's being forced on anybody. And you know, the, the idea that these platforms were, uh, predicated upon is that is the free interchange, the free exchange of, of those types of relationships. If they're going to start making the decision that they're going to go in and in an editorial fashion, decide what is and is not acceptable. I appreciate the call, Carl. Then they move into the categorization of a publisher because they're actually determining what the content is going to be, not just providing a platform for the content to be presented. And if they're going to engage in that, then they, they you could make the legalese argument that they're taking on a role similar to that of the Star Tribune or the New York Times or the Washington Post or any other publisher of information. And at that point, the argument could be made that then they start to become liable for the content of that information. They, there's probably quite a bit of uh, of legal nuance and complication intertwined in that, but th- there's there's something to it. You know, there may be a Pandora's box here that's been opened. TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com.